Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Well, hello and welcome to our digital liturgy here at Antioch Church. My name is Sean, and I'm looking forward to spending some time together digitally on this third Sunday after Epiphany. I cannot wait until I don't have to include that digital disclaimer. I can be looking at faces instead of a camera, but I am grateful we have this medium to still worship together in a safe manner. Now, as we continue to dive deeper into our experience with the church calendar, it bears repeating just a bit more about this season of Epiphany that we are in now. We tend to know about Advent and Lent, Christmas and Easter, but Epiphany, which you may have heard under the larger context of ordinary time or revelation, depending on church tradition, is the time between these two big events and their preparation. We often use the word Epiphany in our everyday vocabularies, but Epiphany means to show or to make known or even to reveal. It kicks off with the Feast of Epiphany, which commemorates the wise men bringing gifts to visit the newborn Messiah. This bringing of gifts shows, makes known, and reveals Jesus as the Christ. In the Sundays after Epiphany, we are in the third today, we commemorate other experiences in the life of Jesus that reveal to us who he is that demonstrate his power, that show his authority, that make known his love. And because of that, we begin to see God revealed in our neighbors, in our enemies, and ourselves. Today, we are going to be looking at a story that demonstrates who Jesus is and how he calls us to be a part of God's bigger story. Our text today comes from the Gospel of Mark, which is traditionally understood as the first gospel account written. And I know that during Advent, I called Mark a Scrooge for skipping over the Christmas story. So it's important I say some nice things about the book of Mark now. Mark presents his account of the life of Jesus with an appealing narrative style. He he likes to tell a story, but he's still succinct. If you are making a resolution to read one of the Gospels this year, pro tip, Mark is the shortest, okay? He's not a big fluff guy. Some of the big themes present in the Gospel of Mark include the demonstration of Jesus as a servant, the immediacy of the gospel, and the kingdom of God, which we are going to explore today. Mark doesn't tend to tell you what to think, but he hopes to influence you by showing Jesus and people's reactions to him. For our text today, we are almost at the beginning of the gospel of Mark. We missed an intro from Mark that references Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophecy of the long-awaited Messiah, in the book of Isaiah, in the story of John the baptizer, also known as John the forerunner. We see the baptism of Jesus by John and Jesus going out into the wilderness for 40 days. Then we get into our text for today and it starts like this. After John was put in prison, so we get a clue as to the when of the start of Jesus's public ministry for Mark. It is only after John has been put in prison Just as we talked about during Advent, Jesus and John have this direct connection and their stories are intertwined. As the forerunner, John's story foreshadows some of what is to come for Jesus. 
The text tells us that John was put in prison, but it's probably more accurate to say that John was handed over because it's the same word used for when Jesus is infamously handed over to the authorities. We'll see in a few chapters about the death of John, which will be indicative of what is to come for Jesus. But what Mark is telling us is that John has completed his God-appointed task, and only after that had occurred did Jesus enter his ministry. Mark is also noting for us that Jesus embraces his ministry from the start as a dangerous ministry, since he's carrying on the message of one who was notoriously arrested. Moving on, the text says again, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So, the good news of God. As you may have heard before, this word in the original Greek is euangelion. Euangelion. And it is where we get our word gospel today. It's actually in the very first verse of the book of Mark where it says, the beginning of the good news or the euangelion about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. What we might not understand as we read over the words good news, or it's also the word for gospel, is that saying this during Jesus' time was a big deal because it was an inherently political statement. Now, I know when I say the word political, that might stir up some feelings inside of you, particularly with how we normally think about the word politics. But stick with me here for a few minutes because this word for good news or euangelion was used by the Roman Empire to announce the good news of the Pax Romana, the birth of Caesar Augustus. It was about his rule and reign. We see this in historical accounts, but also an inscription on a government building was even found that talks about the good news of the Roman Empire, of the birth of Caesar. So when we see in the Gospel of Mark that it says Jesus was proclaiming the good news about God, he was making an inherently political statement. What is politics, really? It's more than what we see today. A true understanding of politics is that it describes how we order our society. It's who and what we honor. It's about what we value. It's about economic and social power. So when we see Jesus talking about the good news of God, he's wrapping all of that in there. He's saying there is an alternative empire that's happening now. Rather than putting your trust in Caesar, put your trust in me. Don't be fooled by the good news of the empire. The real good news is me. We will come back to this idea in a bit, but Jesus continues and he goes on to say, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Just as the arrest of John had marked the time for Jesus to enter into his public ministry, he confirms for us that the time is now. The time is right. The waiting for the Messiah is over. It's the dawn of a new era and, in fact, a new kingdom. This idea of the kingdom of God, a central theme throughout the Gospel of Mark, is essential to understanding the good news and gospel of Jesus. It's where God's reign becomes manifest and his intentions are fulfilled. Rather than the kingdom of Rome, this is the kingdom of God. It's a present reality and a future hope. 
It's present in Jesus and God exercising his authority now, but also reality in the future where God will reign forever. With the inbreaking of this new kingdom, Jesus says there are two things to do, to repent and believe. Some people say that this is the essential sermon of Jesus, to repent and believe. But what do these words really mean? I know for many of us, we've found the traditional religious understanding of these words has fallen flat. They haven't captured the full picture. We tend to think of repenting in terms of wrongdoing and feeling guilty for the things you have done. But a better understanding of repent would be to change one's whole way of thinking, to change your life, to acknowledge that you are heading in one direction, to notice it, and then turn and walk the other way. And for Jesus, when one understands the necessity of turning around, he wants you to walk towards him in belief. And it's important to note that choosing to repent and believe, these aren't just mental exercises. In our Old Testament passage for today, we were in the book of Jonah. And the infamous Ninevites are a great archetype of what this looks like. They heard the message of God. They understood that they were heading in the wrong direction. They changed their way of thinking and they had corresponding actions. They didn't decide in their heads because repentance is not just a mental choice. And belief always involves corresponding actions. And so how does Jesus go about this new era of the kingdom of God? He, he finds a few people to join his startup. The text says this, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So this is the part of the sermon where I am contractually obligated to tell my best fishing story. I was in high school and on vacation with my family in Mexico, and we went out on a deep sea fishing trip. As a teenager, one of the things that I was most excited about was that there was going to be an all-you-can-eat breakfast before we left the dock. And it was very early in the morning when we arrived, and the breakfast spread was entirely made of cookies, which at the time seemed like a pretty good turn of events for me. And so naturally, I went hard on these cookies before we embarked on our journey. I decided to sit inside on the fishing boat as we motored over the choppy waters of the Pacific Ocean out to deeper water. Let me tell you, that was a mistake. The combination of dozens of store-bought cookies, plus choppy waters, and my penchant for getting seasick did not produce great results. It wasn't long before I was sick and leaning over the side of the boat as my, my brother held on to my shirt to make sure I didn't go overboard. When it was time to actually fish, my brothers and my cousins, they, they caught some fish and I was feeling well enough to take a turn to, to try and reel one in. I got one on the line, but I was having a rough time. 
I was taking way longer than anyone else. So naturally, the insults ensued, right? First I get sick, now I can't even reel in a fish. I kept reeling and reeling, and finally I pulled a fish out of the water, and to my great delight, it was the biggest fish that anyone had caught that day. The secret to my success, chum the water yourself with dozens of store-bought cookies. I even found a picture from back then, but one content warning, I have braces and a very questionable haircut, but I hope you enjoy this picture. All that to say, when Jesus talks about us becoming fishers of people, I get a little sick to my stomach. I mentioned that one of the themes throughout Mark's gospel is immediacy. That is certainly on display in this part of the text. We get these two vignettes about Simon, or as we better know him, uh, Peter and Andrew, as well as James and John. They were fishermen of varying degrees of success. And one note on this, we tend to think of them as poor, simple fishermen who are scraping by, and that's probably not the case. We see that the Zebedees had a boat and they hired workers. Sure, Simon and Andrew were casting nets closer to shore, but the fishing industry in Galilee was huge. The Sea of Galilee was full of fish, and we know from different historical accounts that fishermen in Galilee were some of the top targets of tax collectors. And, and why is that? Because compared with farmers or other people that dealt in goods, fishermen had to sell their product quickly before it went bad which meant they often had cash on hand, which is exactly what the tax collectors were looking for. So it's probably more accurate to assume there were a few different family businesses going on here than what we traditionally think when we hear of the fishermen in Jesus' time. We hear Jesus call out to them, and they follow him immediately. This is where I wish Mark did give us a few more details, a little more fluff. And what did this look like? How did they make their decision so quickly? What did they see in Jesus to make that decision? But when I look at the text, I see it's not about what they saw in Jesus. It's about what he saw in them. Sure, Jesus saw what others saw, men at work who were fishing, throwing their nets into the lake, sitting in their boat. But he saw more. He saw their potential. He didn't just see them as they were in that moment, but who they might become under the impact of his presence. He saw them as emissaries of the new kingdom who would spread the good news of that kingdom to the world. That's why they left their boats. That's why they left their families and their nets to follow him. Because a radical announcement that the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, requires a radical and total response. They give us a picture of what it looks like to repent and believe. They didn't stay with what they were doing and just believe in Jesus. They took action. They didn't just believe in what God was calling them to do, but they believed who God was calling them to be. And as Jesus tells them that they are going to fish for people, I have to ask myself, you know, what does that really mean? Is there something special about fishing? Is that a helpful metaphor? I'm not very good at fishing. I'm hoping to learn more here in Bend, but there are several Old Testament references to fishing that talk about it as a metaphor of rescuing people out of judgment, 
deep waters were typically associated with darkness, sin, and death. And to fish a person out meant to rescue them from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of God. Which I think makes total sense for what Jesus is trying to articulate here. But I also think Jesus told them that they were called to be fishers of people because he calls us where we are and according to our gifts. So yes, Jesus gave Peter and Andrew, James and John, a new employment for their old skills. But I think he does the same for you and me. So what would Jesus say to you so that you would understand he wanted to call you to use your unique gifts and skills to bring about the kingdom of God? I want to make you a healer of people. I want to make you a teacher of people. I want to make you a server of people, a welcomer of people, an encourager of people, an equipper of people. What is it for you? How might God want to use you and your unique giftings to bring about his kingdom? Because the reality is that the disciples in this moment probably didn't even know fully what they were signing up for. Throughout the Gospels, the the disciples demonstrate time and again that they don't understand the full picture. They learn alongside Jesus, not quite fully getting what he means by the kingdom of God, of what his plan is. I mean, even these disciples we meet in the text today are littered in different stories with Peter, James, and John are all at the Transfiguration. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, and they still didn't grasp what he meant by the kingdom of God. Brian McLaren, who's an author, a pastor, and a speaker, he sheds light on this idea by discussing the concept of a framing story. He argues that any particular society or civilization at any given time lives by a dominant framing story. During Jesus' ministry, as well as when the Gospel of Mark was written in Rome, the framing story was of the Roman imperial rule. The peace was achieved through power and violence and fear that Caesar was Lord and all allegiance belonged to him. So when Jesus talks about the good news of God, this kingdom of God, he is presenting a different framing story. This framing story is about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that's contrasted by its inverted values. Our psalm for today articulates some of these ideas that Status and wealth and power are neither to be sought nor trusted. That the cry of the oppressed is heard by God and he will rescue them. For in this upside-down kingdom, those who try to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life will save it. That in this kingdom, peace is not made and kept through violence, but the king sacrifices himself to make a new kind of peace. A peace through the forgiveness of enemies, through reconciliation, through grace. Rather than the victorious who are blessed, in the kingdom of God, blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the peacemaker, those who are willing to suffer for doing good. It's in this inbreaking kingdom of God that those who choose to follow him aren't given some kind of privileged status. Instead, in this kingdom, you are called to come and die. That the kingdom of God comes to people who desire justice over victory, who seek peace and mercy over revenge, and who are courageously eager to suffer pain and use their own freedom for the cause of justice 
and not inflict it. I don't know about you, but the framing story that Jesus talks about in contrast to imperial rule seems to still contrast to our framing story today. I'm talking here, now, 2021. What do we as individuals value? What do we as a society value? Do we value winning at all costs? Do we value looking out for ourselves with no thought about others? Does our framing story say that we are in a life and death competition with one another? That we can live without limits no matter what it does to God's creation? That we should pursue dominance instead of reconciliation? I think that Jesus' description of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God should hit just as hard for us today. McLaren, he prevents, uh, presents a different framing story, one that is about the kingdom of God like this. If our framing story tells us that we are free and responsible creatures in a creation made by a good, wise, and loving God, and that our Creator wants us to pursue virtue, collaboration, peace, and mutual care for one another and all living creatures, and that our lives can have profound meaning if we align ourselves with God's wisdom, character, and dreams for us, then our society will take a radically different direction and our world will become a very different place. So if you have committed your life to following Jesus, you may have committed to more than you thought. The gospel is not only about our personal and individual salvation. It's not the traditional understanding of repent and believe. It's about action. It's about partnering with God. It's about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and our role to continue to build that kingdom. And that kingdom continues to be built brick by brick as we orient our lives and take actions for a new kind of ruler. That as we choose to look out for the vulnerable, we reveal more of that kingdom. That when we choose to forgive a friend and seek reconciliation, we reveal more of that kingdom. That when we choose to wear a mask for the sake of others, when we choose justice over retribution, when we make wise choices to care for creation rather than abuse it, when we choose love of our enemies, when we choose to fight against white supremacy and Christian nationalism, when we choose to join in with God in the reconciliation of all things, we reveal what is important in the kingdom of God. So Antioch family, may we be a people who celebrate the good news of God, pursue kingdom building, and reveal who God is to the world.